As uh, Pastor Jim said, pastors have a love for the Word. And I don't believe that it's just pastors who should have a love for the Word, but I believe every disciple ought to have a love for the Word. I love Psalm 119. You know, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. No accident. It's a chapter all about the Word of God. It has 176 verses in it, and 173 verses make a direct reference to God's Word. If you know anything about the structure of it, you will understand that it's based on the Hebrew alphabet. There were 22 characters in the Hebrew alphabet, and this is made up of 22 sections with eight verses in each stanza, all dedicated to the Word of God. And I like the declarations that the psalmist makes there. He, he makes wonderful statements, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. He, he prays to God, asking God to give him insight into his word, like in uh, Psalm 119, verse 18, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. And I think about that, and I think, God, forgive us for reading your word and not seeing the wonderful things that are there. Forgive us for reading it like a duty and trudging through it and uh, dozing off or glazing over as we read it when there's such marvelous, wonderful content in this book. And one of my favorite verses from Psalm 119 is verse 128 where the psalmist said, Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Do you understand what a strong, emphatic statement that is? Now, don't be confused. I do have you in Jonah, and we're going to get to Jonah. I'm just warming up here. Psalm 119, verse 128, such an emphatic statement. He says, therefore, I esteem all thy precepts. Everything God has said, all of it, I esteem it all to be right concerning all things. So everything God has said about everything is exactly right. And he says, and I hate every false way. So we understand if there is a right way, there is also a wrong way. If there is truth, there is error. And what we need to realize is that as human beings, our default mode is error. It's false. Ephesians 2 says that we were on a course of this world. We were walking a path. We were under uh, a ruler. We were in a kingdom that was against God. And so when we get saved, we need to literally be reprogrammed. We understand that there is regeneration that takes place when we get saved. God's Holy Spirit comes to live in us. We become a brand new creature. We become three parts instead of two. But also we remember 12, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says that we need to renew the mind that we've got to be in God's Word so that God's Word can reprogram us so that we now see life the right way. And the constant battle is walking in God's Word as opposed to going back to our default mode, which is error. And so for a Christian... Every one of us ought to make the same declaration that the psalmist made. I esteem all of God's precepts concerning all things to be right. And God, help me to hate every false way. And any time I find myself stepping my foot onto the old path, the wrong path, the false path, God, may you get me back on the right track. And you know, this evening we're going to take a look at Jonah and we're going to be looking at a man who knew what the next step was, but didn't want to take it. 
Now, I love studying Bible characters. Studying Bible characters to me is motivational. It's inspiring. And I believe that God, God designed it that way. Think with me for a minute. Do you remember Hebrews chapter 11? Sometimes we call it the hall, hall of faith, the hall of fame. Did you know that there are 10 people or 10 accounts giving of 10 different people who walked by faith? I mean, a couple of verses to each one. And then there are six more that God mentions by name, like Barak and some of the others. Not Barak, Barak. Uh, I don't want you to confuse you here. And, uh, and then there are a number of others that are alluded to. And then Hebrews 12.1 says this, Seeing, therefore, I believe that's how it starts, it says, wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which has so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And it's as if God is saying, look at all of these examples I have given to you. Now, I want this to motivate you and help you in the race that you, know, you now have to run. It's as if we are picking up the baton of faith and we're beginning to run our leg of the race. Is that not what 1 Corinthians 10 said, that these things were written for our admonishment, for our example? Romans 15, God has recorded these uh, records so that you and I can be admonished by them and have an example by them. And as we come to these Bible characters, it's going to teach us biblical character. And from this character tonight, Jonah, I, I want you to see this prime example of someone who did not want to take the next step in their journey with the Lord. This morning we saw a man, Joshua, who was, who was willing to take the next step and, and did it in a magnificent way. And we see really no criticism of Joshua in the Scripture. He, he was a man who walked with God even when his peers were not, even when the, when the majority was against it. He was for God. He was in that minority of the voice, him and Caleb, who said, God said it, we can do it regardless of what anybody else says. But now we come to a guy named Jonah, and Jonah knows exactly what God wants him to do. I mean, God spells it out in clear and concise terms, but Jonah doesn't want to do it. He simply did not want to take the next step. And so in our walk with the Lord, it's not always a matter of not knowing what to do next. Sometimes it's not wanting to do what God wants us to do next. And so from Jonah, we're going to learn a few principles about this, about the next step when we know what it is, but we hesitate at taking it. If you have your place in Jonah, let's begin in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 10. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea and there was a mighty tempest in the sea so that the ship was like to be broken. 
Then the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship and he lay and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him and said unto him, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call unto thy God, if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. And they said, every one to his fellow, come and let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then said they unto him, tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us? What is thine occupation? And whence comest thou? What is thy country? And of what people art thou? And he said unto them, I am an Hebrew and I fear the Lord the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this evening as your helpless children, realizing that without you we simply can do nothing. And that every effort that we make in our own power and our own strength comes to nothing. But we believe from your word that we can do valiantly through you. That we can do all things through you. And Father, I pray and ask this evening that you would just, that you would just drive all lesser things to the background of our mind. And that you, the preeminent one, would come to the forefront. And that we would make it our life goal to follow you, to serve you, to obey you. May we be students of your word, not to be puffed up with knowledge, but so that we might be obedient in all things. And Father, I pray and ask that you would use this time this evening that we have set apart to worship you through the study of your word. Father, I need you this evening to speak through me. I need you, Lord, to fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me power from on high. Help me to preach your word as you would have it to be preached And I pray, Lord, that each and every person in this room would receive it, not as the word of men, but as it is the word of God. And that, like the Thessalonians, it might work mightily in us who believe. Father, help me to be a blessing to these people and not to add to their burden. Help me to be an encouragement to them and not to discourage them. And help me above all, Lord, to speak the truth in love. Father, we love you and we thank you for the time we have to spend with you this evening. May it be special in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at Jonah, we may identify with him and say, you know, I have been there or maybe I'm there in my Christian life. Sometimes we just struggle with taking the next step. And uh, you may be thinking real spiritually minded right now and can't recall any time when you struggle with that. So let me see if I can help you jog your memory. You ever had somebody, <clears throat> you ever had somebody who has done you wrong? I mean, they really overstepped their boundaries. They did something or said something that they shouldn't to you, and it, it really upset you. You ever, anybody ever been upset here? Anybody lose your temper, get mad? Yeah. The rest of you are lying. We'll deal with that in a minute. And you know... When you get mad and you're reveling in your anger and you're thinking of all the reasons why you should be angry with this person and the Holy Spirit just jabs you right in the heart with some verse about forgiveness like Pastor Jim preached on Wednesday night. 
And you think in your mind, well, I know I'm supposed to forgive, but I really don't want to forgive. I'm, I, I want to be mad just a little while longer. Ever been there? I have. You know what that is? That's us struggling with taking the next step that we know we're supposed to take. Now, that's just one area, forgiveness. But there's many in our lives that if we thought about it, we could probably think of areas where we knew God wanted us to do something, but, boy, we were just so hesitant about it. Sometimes people really struggle with that in giving financially to the Lord. For some people, that's a huge hurdle for them to get over. They, they hear it preached, they read it in the Bible, they see that God's people have always been sacrificial givers. We see that it is simply us giving a portion back of what God has blessed us with. I mean, really, none of it is ours anyway. We're just being good stewards with what has been lent to us by God. But some people really struggle with that. They look at the giving, they look at their budget, they look at their bills, and they say, there's no way I can afford it. I know I should do this, but I really... I just can't take that step right now and you there's areas in our life when we know what the next step is we know what god wants us to do we're just struggling with it we're conflicted with it i think about back when i got saved i got saved when i was 21 i got saved on friday the 13th october 13th 1995 I remember hearing the gospel and, and just being so convicted of my sin. Nobody had convinced me I was a sinner. I, I had enough records to prove that. I knew that I was lost and I was a sinner. And I, I understood when the preacher preached that sin had a penalty. I mean, if we violated God's law, God is the law enforcer. He has to judge righteously. And if he didn't judge righteously, he would not be judicious. He would be a hypocrite. And I knew God was not a hypocrite. So it wasn't an issue for me when the preacher said, your sin must be paid for. And the penalty for your sin is eternity and hell. That didn't offend me at all. Something inside of me said, that's right. And for the first time in my life, not the first time I heard the gospel, but the first time it actually sunk in and made sense, I remember that evening, the preacher explaining that God loved me and the evidence was that he sent his son to die for me. Oh, I grew up hearing Jesus saved. I had John 3.16 memorized when I was about three or four years old. But it was always just kind of a a cliche, if you will, a trite expression. I just never thought about it, never made an impact. And I had had people in my life who said they loved me whose actions said they didn't, you know. My dad left when I was seven years old. I mean, that's my dad. That's one of the two people who's supposed to love me the most in the world, supposed to love me with all my, my, uh, my uh, dysfunctions and supposed to be there for me. And this guy walks out when you're seven years old and doesn't even live in the same state, doesn't come to visit hardly ever called i mean that kind of skews your perception of what love is and so no doubt the 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 path in life i had been on i was just really skeptical about love and how people use the word but for the first time in my life it was made clear to me that god did love me because he didn't just say it he proved it with the greatest evidence ever given to this world he gave His Son to die for me. 
His Son who is perfect. His Son who always pleased the Father. His Son who never buyeth the law. His Son who was the perfect example. He took my place on the cross so that I could be saved. So that I could be brought into God's family. Me who was not a perfect son and even after I got saved would not be a perfect son. God loved me that much that He sent His Son to die for me. That night it made sense. And that night, the preacher extended the invitation. He said, if you will put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, turn from your sin, turn to the Lord, you can be saved. And that night, the best I knew how, I prayed and asked God to forgive me of my sin, and I asked Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. Now, thank God I had grown up with a Christian mother. My dad was an alcoholic who left, but my mom was a Bible-believing Christian who went to church when we didn't even have a car, she made sure. She called my aunt and uncle and asked them if they'd come pick us up. And she didn't just put the kids in the car and send them away. She came with us. And I saw my mom's faithfulness throughout my childhood. And, and I, knew, I knew that Christ makes a difference in a person's life. I knew that I didn't get saved, believe in Jesus, and keep drinking beer. I knew that it didn't work that way. And so when I got saved, I had this desire that if I was going to do it, I was going to do it all the way. I was sickened by hypocrites I had seen as a kid, people who professed to be Christians but, you know, had a secret life on the side. I didn't go in for that. I thought if this thing is real, it's got to be real all the way. But, you know, when I got saved, I had a lot of problems. I had cussing problems. i tell you how bad the cussing problems were. I used to go to a pool hall. And the guy who owned the pool hall was an alcoholic. He drank a liter of liquor every day. And he called me down for cussing in his pool hall. Now, that's true. That's how bad it was. I guess he was trying to have a family environment in there or something. But I had a, I had a problem with cussing. Uh, I had a problem with drinking. You know, at, at one point in my life, I drank every week, drank every weekend. Um, had a problem with uh, getting high. I used to smoke uh, marijuana, used to get high. Uh, and I also uh, had an addiction to, to smokeless tobacco, uh, dipping snuff, you know. And so when I got saved, man, God just, God gave me grace for the cussing, the drinking, the getting high. But man, I'm telling you, skull had a hold on me. You know, even when I want to quit, my aunt who worked at the Skull in Copenhagen factory would send me rolls of Skull. And I think, well, I can't quit now. I got, you know, 10 free cans here. I can't be wasteful. Mama told me not to be wasteful. So I better, after I finish this, then I'll quit. And I remember after I got saved and started going to church, I don't remember my pastor ever preaching on not dipping snuff, you know. But something inside my heart convicted me almost every time I would get my can out to get a dip. And I would think, now this is what I would think. This is me thinking here, so don't get offended at me. I would think, boy, that's uh, what if this is the only thing anybody ever knew about me? What if one of my coworkers never talked to me, but all he ever saw was, would he ever think, that guy must be a Christian? And... I started going out with my pastor witnessing, you know, going out visiting. And I remember thinking, well, I don't want to dip snuff when I'm doing that. 
because the people we're witnessing to might think, well, this guy, I mean, he's got an addiction. It's, you know, I can't be any worse than mine. If he's going to heaven, I am too. It just in my mind, that's the way it was working. I just kept getting convicted that I wasn't being a good testimony or good representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I was convicted about quitting dipping snuff. The problem was I loved dipping snuff. I loved it. It was an addiction. I had. A, I started when I was eight years old. I got saved when I was 21. I mean, by the time I got saved, man, I'd been doing this for over 10 years. Now, I know that raises some questions in your mind. Eight years old. I, I got two words that will probably answer all those. West Virginia. <laughs> Me and all my cousins, we dip snuff. So I remember praying about quitting dipping snuff. And I didn't want to quit. And so I remember having to pray and ask God, God, give me the desire to quit. I don't even want to quit dipping. I know I should quit dipping, but I don't want to. I enjoy it. Please give me the desire to quit. And it seemed like I could pray that at night and get up, you know, in the victory and take my can and go throw it in the trash can in the kitchen in the morning. Of course, I didn't dump it out. But, you know, I'd get up. It was like I'd wake up early in the morning craving it and go back and get it out of there because I just couldn't get rid of it. And finally, about six months after I was saved, God just helped me. I, there wasn't a flash of light from heaven. There wasn't, you know, some supernatural desire. I mean, literally, it was just the tiniest little step you could imagine. I stopped dipping snuff on Sundays. That, that, you know, I got up in the morning and got ready for Sunday school. And I thought, well, I'm not going to get a dip before Sunday school. And I'm definitely not going to dip during church and I, I, I had made a friendship with my pastor, and so I went to his house for lunch and stayed there until evening service. So can you imagine that? But, you know, God just, that was the start, you know. So I, I had a day into it, and so, you know, I would start on Monday morning. But I'm telling you, it, it wasn't this huge leap where I just set it down. I never went back. It was literally just inch by inch. Sometimes it, it was minute by minute. I took off about four layers of skin from the inside of my mouth eating atomic fireballs during that time to try and occupy myself from dipping snuff. And I remember the cravings being so bad that I would think, ten minutes is all I can last, Lord, and if in ten minutes this hasn't let up, I've got to get me a dip of snuff. And by God's grace... I made it through the hour and made it through the day and made it through a week and made it through a month. And I'm telling you, even six months later, sometimes the craving would come on me and I'd want it back. But you know what? I found that God helped me take the step. And the struggle wasn't in knowing what God wanted me to do. It was in obeying what God wanted me to do. Now, that's my personal story. I don't know where yours fits in. Maybe you've had an experience like that. Maybe you're in something right now where you know God has a next step for you. In the message this morning, the Holy Spirit may have been pressing your heart saying, you know it. You know, you almost felt like somebody behind you was trying to push you, shove you. You knew God's wanting you to do something, but you're reluctant to do that. What, what do we do? What do we find? That's where Jonah comes in. Because he, God gave Jonah a specific command, verses 1 and 2. He, it says, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, Arise, go to Nineveh. Not a complicated command at all. 
A simple command. And you know, honestly, most of God's commands are very simple, aren't they? I mean, it's not complex. The gospel is so simple that a child can understand it. And so God gives Jonah a simple command. It's not that Jonah says, man, that's too deep, God. I, I, I'm not sure what you're saying. No, God said, get up and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. And so here Jonah has the step laid out in front of him. But notice verse 3, the contrasting conjunction there. But. This is what God said. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, let's get a little background on this story. Why wouldn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? I mean, God is about to, to pour out some grace on some Gentiles. I mean, Nineveh is called a great city. Uh, and Jonah doesn't want to go and preach. Go. Why wouldn't Jonah want to go to Nineveh? Well, we've got to understand what Nineveh is. Nineveh is the capital of an empire called Assyria. Assyria was a world empire for about 300 years. And Assyria was the empire that took Jonah's homeland, went in and captured Israel. And what we find is that, uh, that they eventually went in, not only took over the people, but took them out of the land, sent their people into the land to occupy the land. This is the capital of enemy territory. That's why Jonah doesn't want to go there. It's just like when we don't want to forgive somebody who's wronged us. We know we're supposed to do it, but we don't want to let them off the hook. Jonah didn't want to go and say, hey, what you guys are doing and going to do is okay by me showing up to preach here. And so he thought he would take matters into his own hand, and he decided instead of going to Nineveh, I'm going to go to Tarshish. And so the first thing we see is that Jonah chose not to take the next step. Can I tell you this? It is a choice. And you either choose to obey God or you choose to disobey God. There is no middle ground. Amen. There's no middle ground. As much as we like to tell ourselves that, well, I'm just neutral. No, there is no neutral position on obedience. It is either obey or disobey. Let, let me see if I can put it in, in, in terms that, that, uh, uh, that will apply to us a little better. My son, Jack, is sitting here on the front row, and Jack is seven years old. And if I tell Jack, Jack, go clean your room, is there any option to that? If he does anything other than clean his room, is it obedience or disobedience? Disobedience. Even if he goes down the hallway into the room, but stands there and doesn't clean it, it's still disobedience. You see, partial obedience is total disobedience. Now, I know that we all want to justify ourselves. It's human nature for us. Remember, that's our default mode, that erroneous path that we're on. We're always trying to justify our actions or our positions. But with God, as with all obedience, either we obey all the way or we don't obey at all. And Jonah makes a choice. He chooses not to obey God. And let me show you an object lesson I believe that God puts in here for us. If your Bible has maps in the back, go to the maps. And the first map in the back of my Bible is one that's called Lands and Nations of the Bible. If you have a Schofield Bible, it's the very first map 
in the back of your Bible. And uh, if, if that's the case, you can look at that one, Lands and Nations of the Bible. If you don't have that one, there may be one that says Roman Empire in the first century after Christ. Either one of those will work. Jonah is in Samaria, which is the northern part of Israel after the, after the kingdom split. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. And on your map, if you're looking there, Nineveh is going to be to the right and it's going to be up towards the corner. Perhaps you see it right above in my map. It's right above the big listing for Assyria. And so to scale, Nineveh is approximately 600 miles northeast of Samaria where Jonah is out. Got that 600 miles northeast. You're kind of going up to the right-hand corner of the map, towards the right-hand corner of the map in your Bible. 600 miles northeast, just past the, the Euphrates River. Now, it says that God told Jonah to go to Nineveh 600 miles east, but Jonah went down to Joppa and called a ship going to Tarshish. On your map, if you look almost all the way over to the left side of the map, over by the Strait of Gibraltar is where it would be now, down where Spain uh, drops down, almost touches Africa. That's Tarshish. That's 2,000 miles west of Samaria. Can I show you an object lesson here? Disobedience is always the opposite of obedience. You say, well, I'm just disobeying a little. I'm just changing what God... I'm just not doing exactly what God said. Man, you might as well be commanded to go to Nineveh and take off and go to Tarshish. You might as well have been commanded to go 600 miles east and instead you go 2,000 miles west. You see, Jonah was literally going to the end of the world as far away as he possibly could. Why would he do that? Well, we're told in the text in verse 3, but Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Again, at the end of verse 3, it says that uh, he got on a ship to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Verse 10, it says that he knew they knew it because he fled from the presence of the Lord. Jonah was trying to get away from God. And that's what disobedience always tries to do. Get away from God. God says, go here, I'm going here. Jonah's trying to get away from the presence of God. Jonah made a choice. Jonah made a choice not to take the next step. He made a choice. And you and I have a choice to make whenever God presents us with the next step. Am I going to obey or am I going to disobey? And don't even, let's not even try to soothe our conscience by saying this is partial obedience. No, my friend, it's exactly opposite of what God wants you to do. Disobedience is always the opposite of what God wants us to do. And you know, here's the ironic thing I find about Jonah is that Jonah was going from the presence of the Lord, yet when he was in the bottom of the belly of the well, in the bottom of the ocean, literally as far away from God as he possibly could be on earth, that's when he prayed because he knew God would hear him. Isn't that ironic? I mean, here's a guy who thinks he can get on a ship and get away from the presence of God, but when he's in the most desperate situation of his life, there's no light, he's in the belly of the well, then he prays. 
Why? Because he knew what the psalmist had said uh, back in Psalm 139, and that is, I can't go anywhere from the presence of the Lord. If I go up to heaven, God is there. If I go down to hell, God is there. Where can I go away from the presence of God? God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. And you know what we need to realize is that when we choose not to take the next step, it does not go unnoticed. As a matter of fact, that's the next thing that Jonah uh, found. Jonah discovered that God was not indifferent to him taking the next step. You know, sometimes we think God's okay with what we do. Well, God said to do this, but I'm going to do this. Our preacher says this, but I'm going to do this. Hey, you know, God is not indifferent to us not taking the next step. God is concerned with our obedience. As a matter of fact, it goes on to tell us that in verses 4 through 10, which we had read, uh, that because of Jonah's disobedience, there came a big storm out there on the sea, so bad that they thought the ship was going to sink. So bad that they began throwing off their cargo, their money, their freight. You know what they were getting paid for and would get paid for. They began throwing that overboard because they thought it's not worth losing our life over. Why did that big storm come? Just because it happened to be going on? No, because God sent it. The Bible says God prepared the storm. God prepared the fish. God prepared the gore. God prepared this. And God sent this because God's not indifferent to our disobedience. And friend, if you're a child of God, you cannot walk in disobedience and think that God is indifferent to that. And we don't have time this evening, but... We could go to to Hebrews chapter 12 and look at verses 5 through 11 and find out that God chastens every son that He loves. If we're without discipline, if we're without correction when we're doing wrong, the Bible says we're bastards. We're not children of God at all because God disciplines everyone who He loves. And so if you and I know what the next step is and we're not taking it, don't even imagine that God's okay with that. God is not. God's not indifferent to our disobedience. He's not indifferent to us taking the next step. And God, here's what we find, God knows how to persuade you to take the next step. Isn't that what Jonah found? Jonah found, he discovered that God wasn't indifferent to him taking the next step. And then we find, well, let me get to this. Uh, Jonah's, Jonah's disobedience in taking that next step affected other people, not just him. You know, we like to think that what we do only affects us. Well, I can do this. I can, I can partake of this. You know, I can do what I want to do. It's up to me. No, Jonah's disobedience affected everybody on that ship. Jonah's disobedience put everybody he was traveling with in danger. Jonah's disobedience not only affected them, but it was ultimately going to affect the people in Nineveh. And you and I need to realize that when we don't take the next step, it affects other people. How about, how about like we talked about this morning, how about when God wants you to take that next step and witness to your neighbor, to your coworker, to your family member? Do you think that affects anything if you don't do that? I guarantee it does. You see, because you may be the only gospel witness that they have in their life. You may be the only person who has that door open to them who could actually tell them the truth about Jesus Christ. And if we don't take that next step that God set before us, it's not just going to affect our life. It's going to affect the lives of the people around us. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, as a husband and as a father, if I choose not to take the next step God has for me, it's going to affect my wife and it's going to affect all three of my sons.
Guaranteed. I can tell you from experience. I saw my dad refuse to follow God. I saw my dad walk out. And I saw my mom have to go on welfare to be able to support us. I saw us have to eat brown beans every day for a week because there was no other food to eat because we didn't have money to eat it. I saw our our utilities get turned off because the money wasn't there to pay. You think maybe that had something to do with my dad walking out? You think maybe if dad was around and would have done what was right, what God wanted him to do, you think maybe it might have impacted my life and my brother's life a little differently? I guarantee you it would. And I guarantee that your disobedience and my disobedience will affect those people who are around us. And so let's not be so selfish that we don't care what happens to anybody else. Let us not be so selfish as to choose disobedience and think that it's not going to have an impact on the other people in our lives. Jonah's disobedience in taking the next step affected other people. Here's a good Bible example. How about David's disobedience in taking Bathsheba? Did that affect anybody else? Hmm. Well, let's see. It affected Uriah, her husband, got him killed. Let's see, it affected the love child that they had. That child died. Boy, Nathan showed up and stuck his finger in David's face and said, Thou art the man, and gave him some pretty drastic uh, consequences to choose from. And David lost a few more children because of it. And the kingdom suffered because of it. Why? Because of David's step of disobedience because David refused to do what God wanted him to do, and he chose to do what he wanted to do. And because of that, the fallout was was collateral. There were people all around him who were affected by that. So my friends, you and I need to consider that when we know that there's a next step God has for us and we don't want to take it. We need to realize this is going to impact my family. This is going to impact the people who are close with me. This is going to impact perhaps the next generation in my family. Now, fourthly, we find that God knew how to convince Jonah to take the next step. Man, I wish we had a lot more time this evening. I I always do this to myself. I I get so excited and I I, I build up the beginning of the message that I have to kind of rush through the end. But let's just read this. Let's look at God, the, the extent that God goes to, to convince Jonah to take the next step. Look at uh, Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, the last verse in chapter 1, and then let's read uh, chapter 2. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Huh, God did all that. God programmed that big old fish out there in that sea to be swimming on a certain course that would intersect with the course that that ship was on at the time when Jonah was going to confess to his shipmates that he was the problem for them being in the sea, at about the time when they finally decided to throw him overboard, even though they didn't want to, and that fish would just happen to be coming along and uh, open up its mouth to swallow him up, up and take him into its belly and then swim on a course back to the coast where Jonah was supposed to... You you think that happened by accident? You think evolution brought that about? Oh, maybe we say, well, you know, Jonah's just a good story. It's not, you know, I mean, we can't take it too literally. Wait a minute, Jesus did. 
That's the Old Testament book that he referenced when the Pharisees said, show us a sign. He said, the only sign you're going to have is the sign of Jonah, that the Son of Man is going to be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights before the resurrection. He referenced Jonah when he was teaching one of the most significant truths of all biblical Christianity, the resurrection. So don't tell me that this isn't a true story. God didn't want Jonah walking in disobedience. And so God went to great extents to convince Jonah to take the next step. I wonder how far God's had to go with us before. I don't know. I can't speculate. I've heard people speculate. I've heard people's testimonies. And I know that God is a caring, loving God, so much so that He will go to great extents to help His children walk in obedience. Chapter 2, the fish comes along. He swallows him up. By the way, historically, it has been documented that people and animals have been swallowed by whales and lived to tell about it. You read some of those old accounts of the old whaling ships when they were out there trying to kill those whales and some of those sailors fell overboard and got swallowed up and they got the whale killed and when they cut the thing open, the guy was still alive in its belly. Most of them had about half their hair eaten away and their pigmentation, their skin was a different color because of the acid in the whale's stomach, but they were alive. Now, I don't need that to convince me that this is true. It's in God's Word, so that's all I need. But I'm telling you, science doesn't have anything that refutes this. Then Jonah, Jonah, whoever he is, (laughs) prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord. Man, oh man, I love Bible words. I wish we had time. I wish we had time to run that reference. We could go back to Psalm 119 where the psalmist said, It was good for me that I was afflicted. And the gist of what he's saying is, Before I was afflicted, I didn't want to do what your word said. But after I was afflicted, I was more than willing to be obedient. And Jonah cries out to God in his affliction. Got any affliction in your life? Does it feel like the heat's been turned up in your life? Does it feel like you're in a pressure cooker and you just don't know what in the world is going on? Perhaps, perhaps there's a next step that you've been reluctant to take. And perhaps God is convincing you that obedience is always the right path. And said, I cry by reason of mine affliction of the Lord, and He heard me out of the belly of hell, cried I. And thou heardest my voice. Kind of sounds like what the psalmist said. If I go down to hell, thou art there. For thou hadst cast me. Thou hadst cast me. Look at, look at Jonah attributing this to the sovereignty of God. He didn't say those stinking sailors threw me overboard. He said, you cast me into the deep. In the midst of the seas. And the floods compassed me about. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. You know, I heard a preacher say one time we ought to eliminate all secondary causes except for God. And I'd say that's, that's some good advice. We, we can get around and start, start poor mouthing and complaining and talking about, oh, if this hadn't happened, you know, and if the stock market had failed and if the real estate market had failed and if I hadn't lost the equity in my house and if I hadn't lost my job, if this had happened, this had happened, this had happened, this. Where's God fit into all that? Maybe we ought to step back and say, God, what do you want me to do next? Hey, maybe God took a few people's jobs because he wants some more missionaries out there around the world preaching the gospel, but 
they were afraid to step out of their comfort zone and all the years they had built up at the factory. I don't know. I'm just speculating here, so don't get mad at me. Then, verse 4, I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. The waters compass me about even to the soul. Can you imagine that? I just can't imagine what it must have been like. I, I have an idea of what a, a dietary tract looks like and intestines and esophagus and a stomach. And, but can you imagine what it must have been like for Jonah? I'd imagine it's probably pretty constricted. Imagine the smell was probably pretty bad down there. Can you imagine how dark that must have been? This week we're going to West Virginia and uh, I'm going to take my, my family to the Beckley Exhibition Coal Mine. I got to go there when I was a kid. And I remember they took us into the coal mine. It, it's an old coal mine that they used to mine out of, but now they use it for tours. And you get to get on the old coal car, and they drive you into that thing and show you the rock face and where they cut it out. And then they get down there into the middle of that coal mine, and they turn out the lights. And I'm telling you, I've never been in a darker place in my life. I remember taking my hand as a kid and seeing how, you know how when it's dark, you know, you can't see things out, but you bring them closer, there's usually enough light. I remember touching my face and still not being able to see my hand. That's how dark it was. I I mean, it was like a darkness that shrouded you, that, that covered you. I imagine that's similar to the darkness that would have been in the whale's belly where Jonah was at. He said, man, it, it, it's, it was, man, I was, I was up to my soul in this. You ever notice how that when God is doing a convincing work in you that it's like you've been singled out and all the periphery in life seems to fade out and it's just you and God. You get to a place where you're talking and you don't care if anybody else hears you, knows that you even exist. You are just wanting to communicate with Him because you know He's the only one who can do anything about your situation. That's where Jonah was at. And that's where Jonah needed to be so that he would call out to God, so that he would consider God's path, so that he would be willing to be obedient to the next step God had before him. He goes on, he says, The waters compassed me about even to the soul. The depth closed me about, round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. Isn't the Bible a great book? I mean, Jonah must have been a sight when he got puked up by that well. (laughs) I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever, yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, listen to this next statement, I remembered the Lord. Thank God. Thank God that God is so loving that in His discipline He brings us to that place where we remember Him again. It's so easy. It is so easy to push God out to the outer boundaries of life. It's so easy to get so full of all the activities that we've got going on. I mean, we have work, we have home, we have Little League, we have activities, we have vacation, we have this, we have that. And man, I'm telling you, you can go through a whole day and pillow your head at night and realize, I haven't thought one time about God. I went through this whole day on my own strength. 
I was so, so consumed with everything else that was around me that God just kind of got crowded out. Man, I'm telling you, all of us probably could use a Jonah experience. Not that I wish it on everyone, but I know that we need to come back to a place where we remember God. Where we realize God is what matters. It's not my reputation. It's not my success. It's not my kids' little league game. It's not, uh, it's not all the work that I've got to do. It's God. And God deserves my attention. God deserves my time. God deserves more than I give Him. And Jonah got to a place where he remembered God. And it was in the belly of the well at the bottom of the sea with seaweed wrapped around his head. I remember the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. They that observe thy lying vanities forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. Man, it sounds like Jonah even got his theology right down there in the belly of that well, doesn't it? Salvation is of the Lord. And he realized it's in God's hands. God allowed us to be born. At that time, Jonah would have been a Jew. He would have known that he was part of God's chosen people, that he was blessed to be in that heritage. And he didn't want those filthy, unclean, Gentile dogs to get in on what God was doing for Israel. You see, this is setting a precedent. Jonah is sent to a Gentile nation to preach to them repentance. And we read through the majority of the Old Testament, the message is to Israel. It's to the Jew. If the Gentile wants to get in on it, then he's got to come to Israel. And he's got to convert and come after Israel's God. And now God is saying, Jonah, you go out. You go tell these people to repent. You tell these people I'm going to destroy them if they don't change their ways. And in Jonah's heart, he's saying, yes, kill them dead, God. Don't save them. And so God knows how to convince us to take the next step. And God has built, God has built the system like this. The system is that disobedience makes life hard. If you're a Christian, if you're a disciple, disobedience will make your life hard. It will make your life become unbearable. You see, because sin is always destructive you remember the progression of sin that's given in james 1 14 every man is tempted when he's led away of his own lust and lust when it hath conceived bringeth forth sin and sin when it is finished bringeth forth death sin works nothing but destruction sin will destroy your relationships Sin will destroy your joy. Sin will destroy your walk with the Lord. Sin will make your life hard. And any time you try to live with sin, you'll get to the same place that Jonah was by the grace of God. And that is, this is more than I can bear. And Jonah got to the point where he was convinced, he was convinced that he should take the next step. Now here, here's the good news. And we're going to finish with this. God gave Jonah a second chance to take the next step. I know I'm over my time limit now, but bear with me for a couple of verses here. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. And the word of the Lord 
came unto Jonah. Look at this. The second time. The second time. Do you realize that God in His righteousness could not even give us a first chance? You ever thought about that? I mean, He's the God of the universe. He's the God who created the whole world and me. Everything I know created by God. He's the one who's done everything right. He's the one who built a testimony of Himself into the creation around me. And yet, He's got to send people to come to me and beg me and plead with me to get right with Him. I mean, God could justly say, if you're going to get saved, you've got to seek me out. You've you got to go through the trouble. You've got to do the footwork. You've got to try and seek and learn and desire and come to me crawling on your knees and lay down on your face and beg me to forgive your filthy sin. God could say that and still be just. But He doesn't. He gives us a first chance and a second chance and who knows how many other chances. The word of the Lord came the second time to Jonah, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh. Now remember, I know you know this, Bible words mean something. Do you recognize that phrase? Do you recognize that statement? Isn't that exactly the same thing that God said to Jonah the first time? Arise, go to Nineveh. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. You know what we find is that God, God doesn't move on until we've obeyed. Oh, we have some of that in us, don't we? Son, eat your dinner. Daddy, can I be excused? Son, you didn't eat your dinner. Eat your dinner. Hey, Daddy, can I have some ice cream? Eat your dinner. We can't move on until you obey. And if you don't get it with the verbal warnings, Dad knows how to convince you to take the next step and eat your dinner. Isn't it wonderful how God has built these things into life that remind us and teach us and give us living object lessons of Him? God says to Jonah the second time, Jonah, arise, go to Nineveh. No, 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 Jonah, we can't move on. No, no, Jonah, it's not time to go back to Israel. No, no, Jonah, you don't get to go. I don't have another assignment for you. Go to Nineveh. Take the next step. This is the step. I choose the steps, not you. Take the next step. And so God tells Jonah the second time, Arise, go to Nineveh, preach to that great city. So, verse 3, Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. What a great truth. God gave Jonah a second chance to take the next step. Aren't you glad that God allows do-overs? I'm so glad that God allows us to have a second chance. Because I've got to tell you, folks, if God didn't allow second chances, it would have been over for me probably the first week I was saved, maybe the first day. Because that's how disobedient my human heart is. That's how rebellious my flesh is. Uh, that, that, that's how disobedient uh, my deceptive heart wants to be to God. 
And the wonderful news is God has a second chance. Perhaps you're here tonight and you've been reluctant to take the next step. Maybe tonight you feel like you're in the hot seat. Maybe tonight you feel like Pastor, ben, Pastor uh, Jim has been telling me all about you because of this message that I'm preaching. I can assure you that hasn't happened. What I do know is if that's the way you're feeling, I would start talking to God and not start questioning the preacher. I would say, Lord, is this what you want me to do? Lord, is this because I haven't been doing what you told me to do? And the wonderful thing is, God's given you another chance to do that tonight. So my, my desire, my heart, my prayer, is that no one would walk out of here knowingly disobedient to God. Because there might not be a third chance. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just saying, God doesn't owe it to you. He doesn't owe it to me. So if tonight you know there's a next step, will you come and obey God? Let's bow our heads.